Hey there, and welcome to the Kraken Busters, where we explore the history of the U.S. sea monster conflict of the 1940s and 1950s. This is episode 14, Dewey, 1949. I'm Keith Pilly. All right, well, last week obviously was a big one. We uh, talked about the period after the Battle of San Francisco. Um, shortly after that catastrophic defeat, Thomas Dewey defeated Harry Truman in the presidential election in 1948, and Truman subsequently pledged to do whatever he could to hand over a stable situation to his successor. Not long after, reconnaissance teams looking at the Bay Area to see what the creatures were doing there discovered that San Francisco Bay had become an enormous breeding ground for them. A horrified Truman ordered the Air Force to drop a spread of six atomic bombs around different parts of the Bay Area to sterilize it, essentially destroying the cities of San Francisco and Oakland in the process, along with some other Bay Area communities. Truman then shot himself. Finally, after a brief caretaker administration by the Speaker of the House, Thomas Dewey took office as president and was immediately surrounded by Air Force boosters who said that now they had solid proof that atomic bombs were the way out of this. That was last week. This week. Welcome to the White House, Mr. Dewey. When Thomas Dewey took the presidential oath of office on January 20th, 1949, he stepped into a situation that was once again literally unprecedented in American history. Ironically, the closest analog was the situation his predecessor had inherited. Like Dewey, Truman had become president while a war raged after the death of his predecessor in office. But of course, the actual circumstances could not have been more different. The war on both fronts had been nearly won when Franklin Roosevelt died, and the American people were united. And FDR's death, while tragic and upsetting, was of natural causes. Dewey, on the other hand, entered office under a cloud of previously unimaginable tragedy. The suicide of Harry Truman was already assuming a legendary, well, I can't believe he did it, but I understand why he did it, mystique. Truman's popularity had reached record lows in his lame duck period after the 1948 election. But after the bombing of the Bay Area and his subsequent suicide, it rebounded substantially. He did what he had to do, was a common point of view, even among those dispossessed from the Bay Area, living in refugee camps that were still occasionally referred to as Trumanvilles. Dewey had to contend with this complicated legacy. He also faced the treacherous position of stepping in virtually at the absolute low point of a conflict, or possibly just past the low point. Since Truman's last act had struck the first sizable blow against the sea creatures in four years of conflict. In the country in general, but particularly in what was left of the Pacific Fleet, a profound, persistent grief over the men and ships lost at San Francisco and then the subsequent devastation of the cities was slowly beginning to mix with optimism in early 1949. A blow had been struck. Some of the worst creatures were indisputably dead. A new president had taken office, promising to try new things. Maybe these creatures could be beaten and life could return to normal after all. In the spirit of forward progress in this new atmosphere, the Navy command structure in the Pacific underwent a bit of a house cleaning. 
Raymond Spruance was removed to sink pack and resigned from public life. He was replaced in the post by Admiral Frank Jack Fletcher, essentially the last man standing among the top tier of American war-era admirals. Fletcher lacked Spruance's strategic wisdom and canny ability to plan a campaign, but he was dutiful and good at following orders, and a strong sense moved through the Navy that the next phase of the action would essentially be given direction from the White House anyway. Before formally assuming command, Fletcher traveled to Washington to talk extensively with Dewey, Forrestal, and incoming Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Victor Henry. The meetings were subdued but collegial. The Washington establishment wanted Fletcher to work with them before making any major strategic moves, but also wanted him to feel empowered to make his own decisions for immediate tactical situations. More than anything, Dewey and Henry wanted Fletcher to push the boundaries of the post-atomic status quo. If three American cities had been traded for the lives of several of the primary creatures, was it possible to start looking into what the benefits of that trade actually looked like without staging yet another potentially catastrophic fleet action? Fletcher understood loud and clear. Shortly after his arrival in San Diego, he ordered a small task force of cruisers, escort carriers, and destroyers to be assembled from 7th Fleet elements in Bremerton, Washington, with orders to attempt a reconnaissance run to Pearl Harbor. The force mustered, centered on the cruiser Chicago, and set out from Bremerton with all ships at high alert. The passage was harrowing for the crews, with numerous false sightings and radio check-ins with the mainland every half hour. But the ships arrived at Pearl Harbor on February 27, 1949, without major incident. They found a port still in ruins, with only enough working dock facilities in the still-ravaged harbor for one destroyer, the Perkins, to actually dock. A small detachment of Marines and some of the ship's officers walked down the gangplank for a brief, rapturous photo opportunity and widespread cheers, spending less than half an hour ashore before returning to their ship for the convoy's return trip. But that brief landfall, with no official contact, was enough for General Art Peters, the secessionist military governor, to see the writing on the wall. No contact was made, by the way, because Fletcher had been clear in his order to everyone involved that the purpose of the exercise was to prove that the Navy could reach Hawaii, nothing more, and that no affirmative moves towards resolving the secession crisis were to be taken without clear, direct orders from Washington. Anyway, Governor Peters' calculus was that if one convoy could make it, there'd be others, and the next time the Marines wouldn't just be standing around on a dock hamming it up for pictures. On February 28th, Peters wrote a formal letter of resignation and placed it into the hands of Deputy Governor Woody Henderson, then surrendered himself for arrest. Henderson accepted and took Peters into custody. He then cabled Washington, briefly stating that he had assumed the position of military governor of Hawaii and that the territory now considered itself once again part of the United States. The Hawaiian insurrection was over, a monumental and immediate win for Dewey. Throughout the secession crisis, fears in Washington had centered on the risk of Soviet encroachment into Hawaii. When incoming Governor Henderson was debriefed and Art Peters was interrogated in custody, it became clear that although the Soviets had indeed reached out and proposed various aid packages that would have led to a Soviet presence on the islands, in truth, they had never even been able to get an exploratory naval presence anywhere near the island. The widespread sense of relief palled a bit shortly afterwards 
When on March 3rd, Black Jack Kraken, scarred by radiation burns but still alive and vigorous, was sighted off of Santa Barbara. Not long after, on March 9th, Seagird the Serpent and a smaller secondary creature of the same type attacked a relief convoy bound for Oahu. The creatures were driven off by destroyers and napalm-armed aircraft, and the convoy reached its destination without suffering major damage, but the fragile optimism just barely taking hold in the country was badly shaken, with renewed rounds of public hysteria gripping several cities, particularly on the West Coast. In Washington, D.C., General Curtis LeMay reiterated his call for round-the-clock atomic air patrols, arguing that if B-29s had been in the air with bombs when Blackjack Kraken had been spotted, another of the remaining primaries could have been removed. Forrestal, in reply, asked what damage the city of Santa Barbara would have suffered from an airburst detonation just out to sea and what the resulting fallout would have done. And an irritated LeMay snarled that wars couldn't be won without the willingness to accept losses. Dewey continued to resist the call for LeMay's aerial atomic strategy, saying instead that he thought the Navy's more targeted atomic weapons in development would be the more appropriate tool once they were ready. The international face of the crisis moved into a new phase later that month when, at the invitation of the communist puppet Japanese government, the USSR quietly rebased the very rapidly expanding Pacific branch of the Red Fleet at Kure in Japan, drastically increasing their ability to project force into the Pacific Ocean. Theoretically, at least. Although the move alarmed committed cold warriors, within the naval intelligence community, the consensus was that the lack of Soviet presence in Hawaii during the secession strongly indicated that they were having their own problems with the sea creatures and that they wouldn't be in any position to move east in any serious fashion. Nevertheless, the development caused a lot of hand-wringing and prompted a few stern but vague statements from Dewey about not letting the crisis get in the way of American resolve to stand firm in the name of freedom. In the spring and early summer of 1949, shipping in the East Pacific slowly resumed, at least between the western United States and Hawaii. The increase in shipping activity did bring with it a matching increase in sea creature attacks, albeit mostly from lesser and secondary creatures. Merchant ships once again traveled in convoys escorted by groups of 7 to 10 ships, always including at least a light aircraft carrier whose planes were armed with napalm bombs. More often than not, the escort forces were generally successful in driving away the creature attacks, but losses were frequent and sometimes severe. Still, morale was improved with the sense that some ground was being taken back and the Navy was maybe starting to hold its own. After the conflict, Lieutenant Commander Dan Sutter, a Helldiver pilot on the escort carrier Tarawa, told the FCDP about the changed mental state of 1949. Quote, It really did feel different out there after San Francisco. I think it would have happened on some level even without the battle and then the bombs. We had some new weapons, we had some new doctrines, and you have to remember that with the timing of things, we would have had new leadership in Dewey even if San Francisco hadn't happened. But it did happen, and after the bombs, we knew for sure that we could kill those sons of bitches. But that's the weird thing. The biggest change was that in 49, our doctrine was to not even try to kill them anymore. It was just to deny them space. If they died in the effort, great. But we were flying then with a very narrowly defined mission to deny them the space around our ships and ports and nothing more. That was never going to be a complete solution. 
There always needed to be some other plan to actually reduce their numbers. But that wasn't my job up in my Helldiver, and anyway, Truman had bought us some breathing room. So the drill in 49 was different from anything we'd tried before. We were back to centering carrier aircraft, at least up front. At any given time, when the convoy was moving, we'd have a strike element orbiting overhead like fighters doing combat air patrol during the war. Except instead of fighters, here you'd be talking a couple of Avengers rigged to drop shallow set aerial depth charges and a couple of Helldivers loaded with napalm bombs. If a lookout or a scout plane saw any sign of creature activity in the water, we'd get vectored into the space in between the contact and the nearest ships. And we got really, really good at working in however tight a space that might wind up being. First, the Avengers had run through and dropped their charges in between the contact and the ships, hoping to drive them back or drive them deep. Then we'd be starting our dives as that happened, timing it so that we were dropping napalm onto the surface right afterwards, turning the surface into a goddamn impassable inferno up there, and heating up the top layer of water to a level they couldn't take. As we were doing this, the convoy had opened up to flank speed to try to put some distance between them and the contact. Meanwhile, destroyers from the escort would be circling around to the contact point to work it over with more depth charges. It was always a hell of a thing to pull out of a dive and circle back and look down and see the ocean on fire. I think the word to use would be surreal, but everything about those days was surreal. It didn't always work. Sometimes we'd misjudge their approach and raise a lot of hell on empty ocean and see them just go around it and attack. Sometimes the scouts and lookouts wouldn't catch them in time, and our first alert would be some ship getting ripped in half by tentacles that popped out of nowhere. And the worst was that we'd see friendly fire casualties sometimes. We were good at working in tight spaces between creature contacts and the ships we were protecting, but we weren't perfect, and the weapons we were using were very powerful. I saw a couple of merchant ships suffer hull damage from depth charges going off too close to them. Worse, I saw three or four instances where the napalm ignited too close to merchant ships or escort ships, I'd always be afraid to look at the action reports to find out how many people died when stuff like that happened. You couldn't. Not if you knew you needed to keep your edge and be ready to drop the next time. Because there was always a next time. The losses were terrible and hard to deal with. Both the friendly fire stuff and the times the monsters got through. But still, you have to remember that there was a different feeling in 49. A good feeling. We weren't just hunkering down anymore. We were taking back some of our own. We were taking the fight to them. We didn't always win the fight, but damned if it didn't feel amazing just to be taking some swings again. End quote. Sailors on the vessels being protected by the new tactics were much less sanguine about the situation than pilots like Sutter. Michael Horowitz, a crewman on the freighter SS Diamond, told an FCDP interviewer, quote, Things changed after San Francisco, and I mean, I know it was a good thing, but it's not like we all just started breathing easy. They started doing convoy runs again, and I mean, we all jumped at the work because we were all broke as hell from not working for so long. Everybody with Siemens papers was just knocking each other over to get the slots because we all needed the money bad. But then you'd get out there and just be scared shitless the whole run. All of us. Every goddamn man on every goddamn ship had either been on a ship that had been attacked before, or had seen one happen, or at the very least, knew people who'd been killed by those sons of bitches. Back in 46, I saw a guy get ripped right off the goddamn deck by an octopus that just up and ate him. You don't forget a thing like that. So now they had us out on these convoys, planes buzzing around overhead all the time, 
And I was happy to be making money, but I started every duty shift thinking I might die. And every night when I hit the bunk, I wondered if I'd make it to the morning. And living like that eats at you. It didn't help that all their new tactics were pretty damn scary to look at. You try standing on the deck of a ship and keeping your shit together and do your job when there's a sea serpent coming at you and a goddamn dive bomber swoops down and drops a bomb in between you and the monster and sets the ocean on fire. I mean, hell yeah, it's better than just letting it through, but it's not exactly a relaxing situation. And every time you're wondering how good that pilot's aim is and just how steady his hands are today. Still, it was good to be working again. And I guess most of us did make it through it. End quote. The renewed sense of taking the fight back to the creatures surfaced around the country in surprising ways. The folk musician Woody Guthrie, who had risen to prominence during the Depression singing songs about the dispossessed before pivoting into writing anthems against fascism during the war, was infected with optimism about the new fighting spirit in the Pacific. A former merchant sailor himself, Guthrie hated the creatures in a visceral way, both on behalf of America in general and of his brother sailors in particular. Guthrie wrote a song, which of course is the theme song of this show, The Kraken Busters, in praise of the crews of the naval vessels protecting the convoys liberating Hawaii. Like many of Guthrie's wartime anti-fascist songs, the verses of The Kraken Busters acted as a rousing call to arms. Now, you, of course, hear a sound-alike recording of this song every week as the theme music for this show, but I'm still going to take a minute here to read some of Guthrie's verses, just because they capture the spirit of the times so well. Those squids they didn't think about, just who they was attacking. Way anchor, boys. Get out there and bust them krakens. I almost feel bad for all those serpents they're attracking. Hit battle stations, boys. Get out there and bust them krakens. Let's line up all them battleships and send this seafood packing. Train them guns out, boys. Get out there and bust them krakens. Guthrie recorded the song, and the record was an immediate nationwide smash. Film footage of Guthrie playing the Kraken Busters at the Bremerton Navy Yard for an audience of sailors with This Machine Kills Sea Monsters painted on the body of his guitar became a staple of newsreels for most of 1949. Guthrie was later invited to perform at the White House, where he irritated the moderate Thomas Dewey by following the Kraken Busters with a 20-minute set of Depression-era songs about the power of unions. As the new status quo established itself in the Pacific, in Washington, Dewey and Forrestal, who had been asked to stay on as Secretary of Defense, continued to spar with LeMay over the use of aerial atomic weapons. The terms of the debate remained roughly the same, but as time moved on, LeMay framed his arguments more and more in terms of how slow the restoration of trade networks in the Pacific was going, and how the slow pace was wasting the time and space gained through the sacrifice of the Bay Area. Dewey, as always, pushed back on the grounds that the collateral costs of airborne atomic weapons would be too high. But privately, he agreed that although welcome progress was being made, it was too slow, and was indeed at risk of wasting the temporary advantage that had been gained. The creatures were still growing, and the numbers were ticking back up. Dewey impatiently met with officials from the Navy Bureau of Ordnance throughout the summer of 1949, asking when their nuclear torpedo program would be ready. The answers were always unsatisfying. Progress was being made, but slowly, and a usable weapon was always at least six to nine months away, not even allowing for manufacturing time. 
and this six to nine month window always slid forward through time to Dewey's immense frustration. And then a report came in from SyncPAC headquarters on Coronado Island that the Trumbull Group had a new proposal. And that is it for this episode. Thanks, as always, for listening. Um, I know I say this every week, but know that every time someone presses play on this, um, it is just a small gift to me, and I appreciate it. Please join me next week as uh, we see what this new idea the Trumbull Group is cooking up actually is. Thanks, and be well. Thank you.